First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy chapter three. A church that is overrun by false teachers, careless Christians, and a timid pastor needs motivation to live out the gospel for the sake of sound doctrine, for the sake of corporate integrity, and for the sake of selfless service. That's what Paul is writing this letter for. He's writing it to the Ephesian pastor, Pastor Timothy, and um, he wants to encourage him to stand up for the gospel truth which affects everything that they do in the church. In chapters 1 and 2, the gospel motivates the church to demand sound teaching. In chapter 3, the gospel motivates the church to demand corporate integrity and also church order. And then in chapters 4 through 6, the gospel motivates the church to selfless service, which apparently was not the case with this Ephesian church, which is why Paul is trying to encourage Timothy in this regard. So here, at the end of chapter 3, Paul is transitioning between the positive commands in chapters 1 and 2, kind of what a church looks like, its expectations, to the, the warnings that fill up the last three chapters. Chapters 4 through 6 are more uh, a call for Timothy to get the church to examine their ways. And so here, in the middle of those two sections, the, the positive commands and the warnings, Paul makes a transition uh, and reminds them of what is most important to them, and that is the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is the source of their life. It is the basis for gospel order. It is to, to be defended by them. They need to stand up for it. This is the truth. The unchanging truth about Jesus Christ that must be believed, loved, and lived. And so let me read our text for us, these three verses at the end of chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is the Word of God. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In the middle of these two sections of his letter, he wants the church to be reminded of the importance of the truth of the gospel because how we act in the church flows from our knowledge of the truth. Or we could say it the opposite way. Our knowledge of the truth will actually flow out into our actions. What we believe about the gospel will produce some something about how we live. And so Paul wants them to be reminded of this great truth of the gospel. That's what verse 16 is about, this common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He's going to say that this is this mystery is it's not a hidden clue or something. It's something that's now revealed to us that we know that Jesus is the Christ. And because of that, it should produce in us this product in verses 14 through 15. So let's look at that first the product of gospel truth, and that is church order, verses 14 and 15. The product of gospel truth is church order. So Paul has been giving instructions in chapters 1 through 3, and now he finally explains the precise meaning or meaning, or, or, or reason why he is writing this letter. He wants them to know, notice, how to conduct themselves, the middle of verse fifth, second line of verse 15, so that you will know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. In other words, Paul expects that 
when the gospel is understood, when it's believed, when it's loved, then it will be lived out in the church and it will produce order. Paul wants them to know about this apparently because there was disorder and chaos in the church. And we'll explore more of this disorder in chapters 4 through 6. Chapter 4, there is doctrinal defection that some of you have turned away from the faith. Chapter 5, there's an improper care of widows and the disregard for elders. And then in chapter 6, there's divisiveness, moral laxity uh, of certain members and, and a love of money. And so Paul's going to say, listen, all those things are chaos. And the, the way you bring order out of that chaos is by teaching and reminding the people about the gospel truth. Because out of the gospel flows right living, not the other way around. Paul is confident and wants Timothy to be confident that the gospel brings order out of chaos. And it is Timothy's job to know how to live properly. Properly, Notice in this text, he says, verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, that's singular in the Greek, hoping to come to you, Timothy, singular again, before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you, Timothy, will know how one ought to conduct himself. So, Timothy, I'm giving you this instruction specifically to you, this letter is to you, but it's meant to be passed on. It's not just for you to hide and, and uh, keep in your heart, so to speak, but, but it is for you to teach other people. In fact, this letter was probably writ, uh, read in front of the rest of the church, but, but Paul's writing it to Timothy to say, this is how you ought to conduct yourself, or how one ought to conduct himself. So in other words, any of your members. And the reason that Paul could not do this in person was because he was delayed. And that's what he says at the verse, beginning of verse 15. If he were not delayed, I think he would have given these instructions in person. But since he is delayed, he has to, to make these instructions clear to Timothy. Timothy, again, is probably a timid, younger pastor, probably in his 30s or early 40s, and, uh, and probably doesn't feel like he has a whole lot of clout among perhaps some members who are older and who have been around a lot longer. This very likely is, it certainly was at one time, the, the church of... Aquila and Priscilla, uh, they had a very large part in raising up this body of believers. And they very well could be members at this time. And so you have a young Timothy who has these kind of stalwarts in the faith who are members of his church. And he's like, what, what am I supposed to do about that? Am I supposed to teach somebody who's wiser than I am? And Paul's like, don't, don't be timid, Timothy. Um, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of, of power and, and of sound mind. He's going to say that. Uh, in the following chapters. But, but the point is that Timothy needs to be reminded about what is most important. That is the gospel truth. Out of the gospel flows our proper living. In the second part of verse 15, um, Paul gives to Timothy the sustainer and the support of gospel truth. The sustainer and support of gospel truth. And these are not one and the same. The sustainer of gospel truth is, uh, is God. Let me show you that. God is the source of the gospel. He says, I write, uh, in, in verse 15, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So this church that is expected to live properly in order is a church that's built up by God. It's God's church. God is the source of the gospel. God is the source of the church. God is the sustainer of the gospel. And so it's not that that God just gives the gospel and then just kind of steps back and says, I'm going to leave you alone to it and, 
And good luck with that. Instead, he sustains it by making his dwelling place among those who claim his gospel. So notice in verse 15, what three ways does Paul describe the church? What's one way that Paul describes the church in verse 15, the middle of the verse? The household of God. Good. What's another one? The church of the living God. Okay, good. And the final one? The pillar and support of the truth. Okay, that's just an appositional phrase to describe what the church is. First, the church is the household of God. Or we could say it this way, the church is the family of God. This is where we get the imagery of the church being a family. And it's completely right to do that. Where the father of the family is not the pastor. The father of the family is God. We are all children. Paul uses the family here as a simile for the church. Notice whose household this is. It's the household of God. It's God's household. God is the Father. We believers are His children. God is our authority. We have responsibility to fall in line underneath Him. He has entrusted to us the work of the ministry. We are managers, not owners. We're not the Father. We're not the parents, so to speak. And so since God is not the God of chaos, we would expect that He would, would have uh, organized the church in such a way that it would run properly and actually be a sounding board and a beacon for the truth of the Gospel. And that's exactly what happens when we submit ourselves to God in the church. So first, the first picture is that the church is the family of God. The second picture that Paul uses is a dwelling place or a tabernacle. The church is the tabernacle of God. Now, when we think of that, we think of this building. So we, I, I think, um, have gotten accustomed to saying, let's go to church. And when we talk about that, we're not talking about going to a, an assembly of believers. We're talking about going to a building. Or I need to go pick up something at the church. It's, it's not... Th- this building has nothing to do with God's purposes I should say it has little to do with God's purposes on this earth of raising up believers. It's just a tool that, that it's used by the assembly of believers. The church is God's people. It is the, the, the people who have co- committed themselves to this group and who have agreed uh, to, the, to the statement of faith and, and the church covenant. The church is an assembly of believers. And, and what God is doing here is He's saying, I am living among you believers. Just like in the Old Testament with the tabernacle where God would live among the people. They were all surrounded around the tabernacle. Here, God lives among us as we meet together as believers. God makes His dwelling place in this assembly of believers. He plants His flag among us. Or as John describes in Revelation chapter 1, do you remember? The assembly of believers is a lampstand that is lit by Jesus, and Jesus walks among us. And He actually threatens some of the churches that I'm going to snuff you out. No longer am I going to allow you to be one of my lampstands. So it is that God actually lives among us as an assembly of believers. The church is the family of God. The church is the dwelling place of God. This assembly of believers is a place where God has chosen to manifest His glory in this age. 
One of the ways that God amazingly decides to show His glory to His people in this era is through this local church. And as long as we are faithful to God's Word, He will still dwell among us, faithful in believing and teaching its doctrine and faithful in living its doctrine. As long as we do that, God will dwell among us. Jesus will still walk among us as one of His lampstands. So God is the sustainer of gospel truth. God is the source of gospel truth and sustainer. And then notice who is the support of the gospel truth. This is surprising. The church of the living God at the end of verse 15, or another way to say that is the pillar and support of the truth. Now this phrase, the pillar and support of the truth, is not uh, modifying the living God. It's not saying that God is the pillar and support of the truth. In the Greek, it's clear that, that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. So both these phrases of the living God and the second phrase, the pillar and support of the truth, both they both modify the word church. So what that tells us is that, 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 that the church is the representative and stronghold for gospel truth. Now this is amazing because we might expect that you know, maybe some good book publishers who have all of these scholars under their care. Maybe they're the pillars and supports of the truth. Zondervan, Erdman's, InterVarsity Press, Crossway. Some of these great book publishers that, that have all these scholars that, that are able to... These people can full-time study the Scriptures and be able to, to, to put out commentaries that are consistent with orthodox doctrine. Maybe they're the pillars in support of the truth. Or we might expect Detroit Seminary or Southern Seminary or Westminster Seminary. Maybe they're the pillars and supports of the truth, but they're not. We might expect Bob Jones or Maranatha or Appalachian Bible College to be the pillars and support of the truth, but they are not. We might even expect that the pillar and support of the truth would be Timothy or the pastor of the church. Because... He does have in Titus chapter 4 a, a responsibility to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So maybe he's the pillar in support of the truth. But that's not what the text says. Who does the text say is the pillar and support of the truth? It is the church. It is the church of the living God. It is the congregation of believers. So here's what that means. Every single one of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus and who have been affirmed as such in a local assembly are responsible to uphold and support the truth of the Gospel. Now, it doesn't mean we sustain it and if we give up it's going to die or something like that, but what it does say is that, that, that it's not a parachurch ministry, it's not a Christian elite or a Christian school who has the primary responsibility to, to be the bulwark for the truth of the Gospel, but rather the churches of Jesus Christ are the pillars and supports of the truth. Now, how can this be? How can it possibly be that we, flawed human beings, could actually do anything to uphold in some way the truth of the Gospel? And I would suggest to you that this can only happen, this, this statement can only be true if we have a proper church government. What I mean by that is that, that we have a congregation made up of baptized believers. That is, the church must be a congregation of people who are 
filled with the Holy Spirit. Because imagine a situation where you have a church, and what I mean by church is an assembly of members who have joined to one body. Imagine you have church membership made up of both believers and unbelievers, kind of like Jonathan Edwards' church back in the day. How can they be the pillar and support of the truth if half of their members are unbelievers? Right? This is what theologians call individual soul liberty. That is that each one of us, each one of us as Christians has the ability by virtue of the indwelling Spirit to know and defend the Gospel truth. That you don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go to a pastor. You frankly don't have to go to even a, a, a good commentary in order to determine the proper meaning of the text. Now those can be helpful. Um, the commentaries that is. But, but we have the Spirit and the tools to understand and to defend the Gospel ourselves. And so we have this responsibility that's laid on us to be the support and the bulwark for the truth of the Gospel. And so we ought to take this seriously. Two implications of this truth. That the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Number one, we need each other. So because we as a church, it doesn't say individual Christians are the pillar and support of the truth, but rather as a church we are the pillar and support of the truth. I would suggest that we need each other in the sense that think about a person who develops his own little private doctrine. He comes to his own doctrinal conclusions and even though he has the Spirit of God in him, he could be way off base, couldn't he? How? Well, he could develop a doctrine based on, um, based on fleshly inclinations. He could, he could come up with some doctrine that he's looking at the Scripture, but he's already got an idea of what it, he thinks it means, and so this is his personal view. And yet he's not bumping into other Christians who are checking him against what other texts say, maybe that, that this person is overlooking, and as a result he could be completely blinded to what the truth is. So what we need is we need a congregation of people who are all working to understand the Scriptures ourselves and that we're checking what, what is being said here from this pulpit and from any other places in this church against what the Scriptures say. That we are like the Bereans, that we're checking the Scripture daily to see if what's being said is true or not. And the reality is, is that a person who's kind of out there on their own and, and kind of studying the Bible on their own and, and living on their own little Christian island can develop all their own little personal interpretations. But if those are not checked against a group of Jesus followers who are indwelt by the Spirit, who are also checking the Scriptures, then very likely they will go way off base. Now, that's not to say that we're going to be perfect in our doctrine. I mean, just look at the history of church Christian churches. There's always some blind spots that churches have, and sometimes blindness produces more blindness. In other words, with regard to those specific blind spots, I recognize that. We're not going to be perfect. But what I'm saying is that we are going to be much better off using God's plan of coming together, trying to understand the Scriptures, going away, trying to understand the Scriptures, and then bouncing ideas or, or, or at least challenging one another when there's, when there's um, lack of clarity or when there's false teaching going on. 
the reality is that unchecked private interpretation is much more susceptible to heresy than a person who checks his understanding against others who are grounded in the faith and are humbly looking at the scriptures. Second implication, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. First, we need each other. Second implication is that every parachurch ministry must support the ministry of the church. Okay, when I say parachurch ministry, I mean any ministry that is Christian related that's trying to help the church. It's outside of the church and it's trying to help it. So, for example, a Christian school, uh, a, 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 college, a Christian college, um, some kind of book publisher, all sorts of Christian, Christian um, parachurch ministries that are great. But their responsibility must be to carry out the ministry of the church. It's one of the reasons why I like the school that our kids go to. It's not necessarily, this is not a shameless plug or anything for them. Um, but, but I do like that, that the ministry of Bethany Christian School is a ministry of First Baptist Church of Troy. It's not that the, the school runs the church. The church runs the school. Same thing is true about Detroit Seminary, Inner City Baptist School, and when they had a bookstore, same thing. Those are all ministries that work to support the main ministry of educating their own believers first and then also trying to educate other believers that, that could come in and, and be helped by them. And that's exactly what First of Troy is doing as well. In other words, these parachurch ministries, Bob Jones University, you know, whatever, whatever parachurch ministries out there, they must never supplant or replace the church because they are not the pillar and support of the truth. We are. And so everything that we do related to a parachurch ministry must fit into what we're doing as a church. They, um, uh, we, we must, we must be, uh, they must submit to our purposes. If they don't, then we don't need to be a part of those ministries. Um, so every parachurch ministry must support the ministry of the church. So we have the we have the product of gospel truth, which is church order. We have the sustainer of sustainer the 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 founder and sustainer of the gospel truth is God Himself. The support of gospel truth is is the local church. And then, or we could say the collection of local churches, maybe a better way to think about it. And then finally, the summary of gospel truth in verse 16. Summary of gospel truth. So what is this gospel? We've been talking a lot about what this gospel does. It creates orderliness and it's something that we must protect and defend and, and support. But what is this gospel? Well, Paul summarizes it in a unique way here in verse 16. And what he's saying here, I think, is that the key to living out our expectation that God has for us, conducting ourselves properly in the house of God, the key to doing this is Jesus Christ. In other words, our godliness is rooted in the gospel. How we live, it depends on what we believe and whether we believe the right thing. And so our understanding of Jesus Christ results in our proper living for Christ. And so he says here in verse 16 that this is our common confession. It's the great uh, this this uh, mystery, this great is this mystery of godliness. It's been revealed to us through the apostles, through the writings of the apostles. And in essence, it is that Jesus is the the source and the essence of our unity and orderliness and doctrinal integrity. 
Jesus is at the heart of who we are and what we do. This is the Gospel. When we understand that, that Jesus is at the center of everything that we do, we, you, know, you often hear this Christ-centered ministry. Well, that's, that's the idea, is that Christ is at the center of what we do. When He is, when the Gospel is at the center, it changes us, it transforms us. So what is the content of this mystery that Paul talks about at the beginning of verse 16? And the answer is in the rest of the verse. The content is Christ Himself. That's what all these descriptions are. It's talking about Christ, His life, his vindication through the resurrection, his um, his gospel, and then finally his ascension to the highest place of honor. So first we see the incarnate Lord, the incarnate Lord in the first part. It says that he he who was revealed in the flesh. So he was revealed in the flesh. This is as Jesus was on the earth. He was revealed in the flesh. John one one to fourteen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld its glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. This, this Word who became flesh is Jesus. It's not just another name for God the Father. It's actually Jesus, the Messiah. And so He was revealed to the world in the flesh, and then secondly, He was vindicated by the Spirit. The reality that Jesus is the promised Messiah is proven most clearly in the resurrection. Now, we we saw lots of examples or lots of supports or uh, proofs that Jesus was the Messiah in His miracles, but the the clearest proof that Jesus is the Messiah is not necessarily from all of those things, although those those all support that idea. Um, The clearest proof is at the resurrection. That Christ was validated as the Son of God by the Spirit through His resurrection from the dead. He was the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again. He is the first fruit of our resurrection. We know that we will be raised from the dead because Christ first was raised from the dead, never to die again. And then, after His earthly ministry, He was seen by angels there, the next line. The angels witness His life on earth and serve as witnesses in the cosmic court that He's promised that He is this promised Messiah. They were there... While he was on earth, they were there at his birth. You remember, they're witnessing uh, this great event of Jesus coming to the earth. They were also there at his ascension when he went on up into heaven, and they're there now as he is enthroned on high. So we have the incarnate Lord, and then the last part of the verse is talking about Jesus as the ascended Lord. The incarnate Lord, and then the ascended Lord. And that's seen here in these last couple of lines proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so this gives further proof that He is the Messiah, that that this message about the Gospel of Jesus Christ was actually proclaimed on in the nations and believed. It was believed by the people and then He was received up in in glory. He, He now is ascended and exalted at the right hand of God, which proves that God not only accepted His penalty for sin or the payment for the penalty of sin, but, but now he's exalted Jesus to the highest station, as we sing. That there's no higher place for any being in the universe to have than what Jesus has, which is at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the incarnate Lord, and he is the ascended Lord. And so this gospel should shape us. And that leads us to our maybe principles to consider. Number one, the gospel shapes our church's culture. 
the gospel, when properly understood, preached, believed, loved, should result in it being lived. That is, that it should bring order out of chaos. That means that the church must demand sound teaching, as Paul has been saying in, ver- in chapters 1 through 3. Sound teaching, corporate integrity. When I say corporate integrity, I mean make sure that the men who are selected for the office of pastor and deacons actually fit the qualifications. So, so sound teaching, chapter 1. Corporate integrity, um, chapter 3. And then in chapters 4 through 6, selfless service. It ought to change the way that we live. If the gospel is not at work, then chaos will rule the day. Division will abound. Selfishness will be king. The life and the activity of the church must be shaped by the transforming power of the gospel. And when I say the gospel, I'm not just saying uh, that Jesus is the Christ, but I'm saying all the ramifications that come with the gospel. That is, that, that, that when we come to Christ, it's not just that we are saved from an eternal hell. That is part of it. It's not just that we have promised for us an eternal home in heaven. That's part of it. But it's also that it changes us between the time we get saved and the time we get to heaven, right? It actually shapes the way that we look at, at the Word of God and respond to it in faith and obedience. That's what I'm talking about when I say the Gospel. And that, must, that means that we must continually to work to know the Gospel. Because I believe that the more that we know the Gospel, the more that we will love the Gospel. And the more that we love the Gospel, the more we'll live the Gospel. Isn't that true about other areas of your life that you love? I mean, take your favorite hobby. No one tells you to spend money, time, and energy on engaging in that hobby. You simply do it. And you make that a priority in life. You take special time out of your day so that you can engage in that hobby. Why? Because you love it. The things that you love, you live. You do those things. And we need to love the Gospel because only then will we be compelled to live the Gospel, to sing about the Gospel, to, to, to preach the Gospel, proclaim the Gospel to our family and to our friends, to encourage others with the Gospel. The only way that we can love the Gospel is when we know the Gospel. That's why we're constantly looking back into the Word. What does the Scripture have to say? Principle number one, the gospel shapes our church's culture. Principle number two, the gospel is sustained by God but supported by the church. God is the one who ultimately is the source of the gospel. God is the one who ultimately sustains the gospel. But God has chosen to employ the local church to be the bulwark for the gospel, the buttress of the gospel. And so that means that our responsibility is to support the gospel. That we need to help to protect and defend the gospel. When, when, it, is being under, when it is put under attack, we don't just lay down and say, well, we'll let the gospel do, do its own work. We stand up and defend the gospel. We refute those who oppose it. And in order for us to do that, it implies that we actually have to know what is included in the gospel. Right? It seems, seems kind of like a no-brainer, but, but we have to know the gospel. And that means we can't, and I would say, when I say we, I mean, as a congregation, we cannot punt on our responsibility. We can't say, well, you know, that's my pastor's job to support and defend the gospel. I'll let them handle that. 
They can be the pillar and support of the truth. I don't understand all those those really big words. We can't punt on our responsibility. We can't say that's not my job. You know, we'll just leave that to the Bible scholars or the seminary or the pastor. Instead, we need to say it is my job. I am part of this local church and part of my responsibility is to understand what the gospel is and what it means for our life. And I need to understand when someone's attacking the gospel. I need to study to show myself approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who is rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 I need to be the one who searches the scripture daily to see if what is being said from this pulpit is true. How we act in the church flows out of our knowledge of the truth. So if we're going to have order, integrity, and doctrinal purity, it can only happen through, through uh, work on our part that is complicit with the work that God is doing through His Spirit to make us a better trophy of God's grace. And He does that by, by holding out in front of us this glorious gospel, helping us to understand what we were saved from, but what He's saving us to as well. And then using that to shape us, to change us. Changes the way that we are, changes the way that we live, changes the way that we act among one another here in this church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would never grow tired of understanding your truth. The the truth that Jesus came. He was the incarnate Lord, the incarnate God, who came to this earth as a baby and grew up to be a man so that he could die for the sin of mankind. And now he is the ascended Lord, proven to be uh, the promised Messiah by virtue of his resurrection and his exaltation at the right hand of you. And so we, we, we praise you for our, our great Savior. And we want to live in light of what he has done for us. Lord, help us not to to see the gospel truth as mundane, as something that someone else can figure out, and we'll we'll just whenever we have problems we'll use the gospel, but the rest of our life we can kind of not worry about it. But rather help us to to um, to give our lives to understanding the gospel as best we can with the tools that we have been equipped with, and help us to each recognize our own part in uh, working as a church, as one body, to support and defend the truth of the gospel that you've entrusted to us. Lord, we know you don't need us. You could, if you wanted to, you could defend and support the truth on your own. But you've chosen to employ us as a church to do your bidding, and so we're happy to, to be your servants in this regard. We're, we're humbled to, uh, to realize that you would entrust such a great treasure to us, and we don't want to uh, let it slip through the cracks or, or let it slip away. We want to... We want to um, honor this great trust that you've given to us. So use us and strengthen us for this task, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.